Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we harvest the crop of the last week in Vatican journalism. And of course, in keeping with the metaphysical prime directive of the Pope Francis era, there is a lot to talk about. So let's get started. We begin with health scare once again. We are dealing with a frisson around Pope Francis's health. For the third time this year, he was forced to travel to Rome's Gemelli Hospital for a checkup. The Vatican is now claiming that he is suffering from a inflammation of the lungs that has forced him to curtail, but not entirely cancel, his schedule ahead of a planned trip to Dubai for the COP28 summit later this week. We'll explain what's going on and try to suggest the right way to think about these occasional ferments with regard to the Pope's well-being. Second, we've got the Pope's Jewish problem. How long-standing tensions between the Pope and Israel and the Jewish world are coming to a head as a result of the war in Gaza will explain what the issues are and what potentially may be at stake. Third, a women's revolution in Italy. How the brutal slaying of a 22-year-old young Italian woman by her ex-boyfriend has raised a national movement around the issue of violence against women which may put new pressures, among other institutions, on the Catholic Church and on the Vatican. We'll explain how that might work and what issues may be in play. Fourth, the Pentecostal explosion. Recently, two different bishops in African nations have raised alarms about massive defections from Catholicism to Christian Pentecostalism. We will unpack why this is not a new story in the options on the table in terms of how the church might respond. Finally this week, we got still doing Dubai. Pope Francis has indicated he still plans to travel to Dubai for that climate change summit. We'll explain what the Pope hopes to get out of this meeting and what might be at stake. All that and more is waiting for you on this edition of Last Week in the Church, so please stay where you are. This is our official Last Week in the Church infomercial because I come to you with a special offer for all of those would-be Catholic eggheads out there. That is, if you're the kind of person who likes sounding smart, who likes creating the impression that you know things other people don't, that certainly describes me. If that describes you, you're going to want to know about this. Now, I've already spoken about this new app, this new online resource called Magisterium AI. Basically, what it allows you to do is to type in a question like, what does it mean that the Pope is infallible? Or what does the Catholic Church teach about the environment? Or, you know, whatever. And it will give you a short, smart, easily digestible answer based on more than 5,000 official magisterial texts. But recently, these guys have created a new feature on the app. It's called the Scholarly Mode which draws not just on official texts, but also the best and brightest of Catholic thinkers and theologians over the centuries, from Augustine and Aquinas to more contemporary figures. And we'll also give you a very quick answer about what those folks have had to say about what the church teaches on various issues. Now, I promise you that if you try this once, you're going to wonder how in God's name you ever lived without it. It's brought to you by our friends at Longbeard. They are the digital marketing design company that provide the IT backbone for Crux. They provide the same service for a slew of other Catholic organizations and outfits. They are, they're brilliant and they are creative. 
and they are tremendous. And I'm kind of out of adjectives at this point, which is saying something because I traffic in adjectives. But I am telling you, these people are the absolute level best. So check it out. This is Magisterium AI, their new scholarly mode. You're going to dig it. Magisterium.com, that is Magisterium.com. It comes with my personal guarantee. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, November 28th in the year of our Lord, 2023. As you can tell, if you're a regular viewer of this program, we are still not back in Rome. We are still coming to you from the mountainous city, the mile-high city of Denver, Colorado, where we have been visiting my wife's natural and my own adopted families during the last couple of weeks. We'll be back in Rome shortly. In the meantime, let me give a special shout out to the fine people at the Holiday Inn in Lakewood, Colorado, who have treated us with great hospitality while we've been here. Let's dive in. So we begin with the Pope's health. If you have been following the wires for the last couple of days, you know that once again, we are in the grip of a kind of what I would describe as mild alarm about Pope Francis's health. Things began on Saturday when the Vatican put out a brief statement indicating that as a result of a mild flu, the Pope was going to be pulling out of his scheduled commitments that day. Later on in the day, we got a note saying that the Pope had gone to Rome's Gemelli Hospital. That, of course, is the hospital where Popes always go. There is a room there permanently set aside for the Pope's use, where he had undergone a CAT scan, which they said was negative. So basically, the message was nothing to see here. Then, what we learned is that for the Pope's Angelus address on Sunday, he was not going to be doing that from the window of the papal apartment overlooking St. Peter's Square as normal. Instead, it would be live-streamed from his residence in the Santa Marta. That's the kind of hotel-like structure on Vatican grounds where Pope Francis lives. First time he had live-streamed an event from there since the COVID pandemic, actually. And during that Angelus, while the Pope did briefly speak in his own name, most of the message was read for him by an aide. The Pope fundamentally seemed okay, although it was clear he was having difficulty breathing. You could also, on the TV feed, you could see that he had an IV hookup in his hand where he had been receiving antibiotics. Then, later on Monday, we got a statement from the Vatican indicating that his CAT scan, well, Essentially, adding detail would be the polite way to put it. Correcting, I suppose, would be the more accurate way to put it. Their statement on Sunday saying that the CAT scan, while negative for pneumonia, had in fact turned up an inflammation of the lungs, and that over the next few days, the Pope would be curtailing his schedule, that is, eliminating some planned meetings, though not all of them. He actually met with a head of state on Monday, despite his health difficulties. All of this clearly motivated to try to preserve his strength so he can make that trip to Dubai December 1st through the 3rd. Now, look, as I say, this is not our first rodeo, right? This is not the first time down the block in terms of there being a health scare around Pope Francis. As I mentioned at the top, this is actually the third time he's been to the Gemelli this year. In late March, early April, he was hospitalized for some respiratory difficulties, basically 
a case of bronchitis. In June, he went back in for a hernial surgery. And each time, of course, there is a mixture of reassuring statements from officialdom and alarm ranging to borderline panic in some other circles about whether or not this is actually the end. Let me try to provide to you what I think of as the proper mental framework to approach these occasional health scares. It's a mixture of caution and realism, okay? Let's begin with the caution. And by caution, I basically mean let's not get carried away. Let me give you a bit of breaking news. A prominent official, a prominent personality in Rome is forced to curtail certain events on their schedule as a result of an illness that involves a respiratory difficulty, and they are trying to marshal their strength ahead of this planned trip to Dubai for the COP28 summit. I could easily be talking about the Pope. I'm not. I'm talking about my wife, Elise. Here in Denver, she has contracted a somewhat nasty cold that is coming with sinus complications, which is making her breathing a little bit more labored. On Sunday, she had to bail on a planned rendezvous with some members of her family. Today, again, we're not going to have the full schedule that we were looking at in terms of maximizing our time with family because she's trying to get better because she wants to be able to be in good shape to make that trip to Dubai once we get back. Now, look, am I concerned about Elise? Of course, nobody likes to see somebody they care about suffering. Do I think she's on death's door? No, I actually think she's going to be perfectly fine. Okay, it's just going to take some time. And I think probably the same thing is true of Pope Francis. There is no indication that the issues he's dealing with right now are life-threatening. And therefore, memo to colleagues on the Vatican beat, don't have your finger poised above the button to make your obituary go live quite yet. Okay, I don't think we're quite there yet. Now, that's the caution. You know, the realism is, let's face it, you know, we are talking about an 86-year-old Pontiff who is going to turn 87 next month on December 17th. He is already the oldest reigning Pontiff in the last 120 years. He's been to the hospital three times this year. Respiratory challenges are especially significant because, as we all know, as a young man, the Pope had part of one lung removed. He is dealing with a cluster of various other ailments. None of them life-threatening, but all of them annoying. He has a chronic case of sciatica, that nerve condition that makes it painful to stand or sit in one position for very long. He has ongoing knee difficulties, so forth and so on. So look, you know, the plain reality is one of these days, one of these health scares really will mark the beginning of the end. And so it is always in order I think, to stay alert and to take these things seriously. On the other hand, let us not forget that Pope Francis has demonstrated stunning resilience over his now more than 10 years in office. And this is a pope who believes he still has miles to go before he sleeps. I mean, among other things, he wants to bring his much vaunted Senate of Bishops on Synodality in for a landing next October. I think in his, he's already taking meetings about the great jubilee that is set for the year 2025 in Rome. And so I think if it is up to Pope Francis, and of course it is never completely up to any one of us, but if it is up to him, I think he's going to be around for some time yet to come. So bottom line, take it seriously, but don't get carried away. All right, the Pope's Jewish problem. 
So over the, the course of the Francis Papacy, which began, let us remember, actually, with pretty rosy forecasts about Catholic-Jewish relations on his watch. Pope Francis, after all, comes from Argentina, which has by far the largest Jewish population in Latin America, sixth largest outside of Israel. And as our former colleague, Inez San Martin, shout out Inez, never tired of reminding me during the time that she worked at Crux, Buenos Aires had the first kosher McDonald's outside of Israel in, I don't know, it's, it's in some mall. I've never verified this, by the way, but if we are to trust Inez, that's the deal. And as a result of that demography in Argentina, the future pope, Cardinal Jorge Mario Bergoglio, had developed very close relations with a number of prominent Jews, including Rabbi Abraham Skorka, with whom he did a book, and who was accompanied the pope on some of his trips, including his 2014 trip to the Holy Land. So at the beginning, you know, people thought this would be an era of good feelings in terms of Catholic-Jewish relations, and there certainly had been some peak moments. There was that trip to Israel that I mentioned in 2014. The Pope visited the Great Roman Synagogue in 2016. He has had regular meetings over the years with Jewish leaders, always cordial. He has made various statements warning about a rise in anti-Semitism, most recently in a November 1st interview with TG Uno, that's the main nightly news broadcast in Italy. And so it's not as if the story has been unremittingly bleak. On the other hand, there clearly are certain chronic sources of tension, and I think we can sort of break them down into three categories. The first is political. Israel and many Jews have long felt that the Vatican institutionally leans in favor of the Palestinians in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Some of that is just structural. The Christian population of the Holy Land is overwhelmingly Arab-Palestinian. But under Pope Francis, there is a feeling that that perceived pro-Palestinian tent has been perhaps ratcheted up a notch or two. This, of course, is history's first pope from the developing world, feels a natural sympathy for the perceived underdog. Remember, during that trip to Israel in 2014, the pope made an impromptu stop at the separation wall in Bethlehem between Israel and Palestine, got out of the car to pray, in front of a piece of graffiti that read Free Palestine. That irritated many Israelis and Jewish sympathizers around the world who thought it was a kind of piece of agitprop. And clearly, that perceived sort of tilt in favor of the Palestinians has gained new life amid the Gaza conflict. Many Israelis and Jews continue to believe the Pope Francis has not issued the forthright, unequivocal condemnation of Hamas terrorism that they want from him. They were annoyed that in October, when a group of family members of Israeli hostages came to Italy, they were told that the Pope was too busy to see them because the Senate of Bishops was going on, even though he kept up a full calendar of other appointments during that month. And when he did meet with them recently, he insisted that on the same day, he also meet with a group of family members of Palestinians from Gaza to demonstrate his equal concern for them. In the minds of many Israelis, many Jews, this amounts to a kind of false moral equivalence between the aggressor and the victimized party. Now, the second source of concern is theological. You will remember, for instance, that in 2021, 
There was a kind of mini tempest that erupted when the Pope said during one of his audiences that the Torah, that is the Jewish life, does not give, Jewish law rather, does not give life, and that if you want life, you need to turn to the message of Christ as embodied in the New Testament. This was seen as reviving some traditional anti-Jewish Christian stereotypes. The Pope routinely uses the term Pharisee as a kind of synonym for rigidity, legalism. I mean, basically, it's a term of opprobrium, right? It's a pejorative in the Pope's vocabulary. This also has irritated many Jews. And then finally, the third source of tension, there is a perception that the Pope's campaign of outreach to Islam sometimes comes at the expense of sensitivity to Jewish concerns. I mean, for instance, his budding friendship with the grand imam of the Al-Azhar University and Mosque in Cairo. They, of course, issued that joint document on human fraternity in the United Arab Emirates, where the Pope will be going shortly, and he will probably see the grand imam there. That irritates many Israelis and Jews because of the perception that the grand imam is, well, to put it politely, no friend of Israel or Jews. He publicly supported the Hamas attacks on Israel on October 7th. All of that together has created the impression that of a sort of crisis, a budding crisis in Catholic-Jewish relations. Now, none of this is insurmountable, and I would remind you we have seen these crises before. Under John Paul II, there was a crisis around a, a convent of nuns, Carmelite nuns near Auschwitz, where they put up a big cross, which was perceived in some Jewish circles as an effort to kind of spiritually colonize Auschwitz. That created a series of difficulties. Under Benedict XVI, there was the rehabilitation of a traditionalist Holocaust-denying bishop. That created another crisis, and so here we are again. The optimistic reading would be that the relationship actually usually emerges stronger from these crises because people are forced to become more intentional about it. The pessimistic reading is that perhaps we are in the midst of a long-term downward cycle in which the Catholic-Jewish relationship is shifting from being the primordial interfaith relationship of the Catholic Church to simply one among many, many, many different relationships, which will have its ups and downs, but will never again be the kind of towering priority it was in that immediate post-war, post-Holocaust context. As ever, we will see, but obviously bears watching. Third up this week, the women's revolution in Italy. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, in the middle part of November, it was November 11th, a 22-year-old young Italian woman by the name of Giulia Cecchettin went missing. She was supposed to be attending a graduation party to celebrate her earning her engineering degree from the University of Padua. The last her family knew, she was going to a shopping mall to get shoes for that party and was also going to have a burger with her ex-boyfriend. She was never heard from again. This launched a national hunt. A week later, her body was discovered in a ditch by a lake in the Alps, covered in plastic garbage bags. An autopsy later revealed 26 separate knife wounds in her arms, her neck, her legs, other parts of her body. And evidence very quickly suggested that it was that ex-boyfriend who was the culprit. He was eventually arrested on the lam in Germany and has been extradited back to Italy. He is now in a prison. 
outside Verona awaiting trial for aggravated homicide. Now, this is, in a way, it is surprising that this has triggered a national furor because the sad truth is this is not at all uncommon. Data from the Italian Interior Ministry suggests this was the 110th murder of a woman in Italy this year alone, with 55 of those coming at the hands of either a current or former partner. That's a clip of one killing, one violent death of a woman in Italy every three days. The Italians are talking about this as an epidemic of femicide. But the Cecatine case is sort of the case that has caused the explosion, in part because her sister has emerged as an extraordinarily forceful and articulate spokesperson and has helped shape this budding national movement. Massive rallies have been held all around the country, and in an unusual show of solidarity, the country's prime minister and the leader of the political opposition, both of whom coincidentally are women, Georgia Maloney and Eli Schlein, have in effect kind of vowed to join forces to try to do something to combat this tidal wave of femicide. Now, here's the thing. The Vatican, despite its pretense to universality, is physically located in Italy. Culturally, psychologically, it is very much an Italian institution, which means that Italian realities have a disproportionate impact on shaping the consciousness and perceived priorities of Vatican officials. And in this case, this national uprising around the issue of violence against women, that's what Vatican officials are hearing when they go to the bar for their coffee and cornetto in the morning. It's what they're seeing when they're opening their newspapers or turning on their TVs. It's what they hear about when they go to restaurants, when they get into cabs. Inevitably, this situation is going to place new pressure on the church and the Vatican to try to demonstrate its own concern and its own solidarity. And that might be a little tricky, actually, for Pope Francis. I mean, at first blush, you would think he's the ideal pope for this because empowering women has been one of the cornerstones of his papacy from the very beginning. But it is true that at the moment, the Catholic Church is struggling with its own internal issues having to do with violence against women, localized in the case of ex-Jesuit priest Father Marco Rupnik, who was accused of the serial sexual, psychological, and spiritual abuse of more than 20 adult women, most of them nuns, over a 30-year period, there has been a drumbeat of criticism about the way church officials, up to and including Pope Francis, have handled this issue. Recently, the former editor of a women's insert to the Vatican newspaper, a prominent Italian pundit by the name of Lucetta Scarafia, publicly said that Pope Francis has no business trying to be a moral leader on the issue of violence against women, as long as he is still tolerating abusers such as Rupnik in his own ranks. Bottom line is that this new ferment in Italy is going to place a new spotlight on every institution, including the Catholic Church, including the Vatican, in terms of what it does to promote the security, the safety, and the empowerment of women. And while Francis has a, a great deal positive to put on the table in terms of that conversation, this situation likely is also going to create new pressures to follow through, most particularly, probably, to come clean on how we got to where we are on the Rupnik mess and where that is going to go from here. That was already a hot potato for the Pope. This situation clearly is going to compound the pressure 
on the Pope and his aides to be perceived as doing the right thing. All right, fourth up this week, we've got the Pentecostal explosion. So Crux's stellar Africa correspondent, Nagala Kilian Chimtan, recently has, has been doing some reporting. First, out of Ghana, and then second, out of Congo, Brazzaville, in both cases, quoting very prominent bishops, complaining about defections from the Catholic Church to Christian Pentecostalism, basically worrying that an increasing share of the Catholic grassroots is leaving the Catholic Church to join various Pentecostal groups, churches, movements. The pejorative word often used is sex. But in any event, joining up with Pentecostals in a way that might eventually end up threatening the Catholic share of the population in these countries. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a new story. I mean, you could make an argument that the most important religious story of the 20th century on a global scale was the phenomenal rise in Christian Pentecostalism. At the beginning of the 20th century, there were fewer than a million self-identified Pentecostals or Charismatics in the world. By the end of the 20th century, they numbered in the hundreds of millions. It was one of the most phenomenal explosions of new religious energy in all of human history. And in many parts of the world, that growth of Pentecostalism came to a significant degree at the expense of the Catholic Church. Latin America is the most prominent example. Latin America began the 20th century as virtually a homogeneously Catholic continent. Today, it is a hotbed of religious diversity. There are some countries in Latin America that are now majority Christian, evangelical, and Pentecostal, where Catholicism has become an important, but nevertheless, a minority presence. And that pattern now seems in some ways to be replicating itself in parts of Africa. Now, if you ask why this is happening, most experts will tell you it is because of a few very basic factors. One, Pentecostal communities tend to be extraordinarily dynamic. That is, they are full of energy. The music tends to be high octane, upbeat, and infectious. The preaching is lively and engrossing. The community exudes a kind of welcoming vibe. Now, in addition to that, critics will also say it's because Pentecostals often traffic in kind of easy, false promises. There is the so-called prosperity gospel, the idea that if you were poor and you join one of these Pentecostal churches and you pray enough and do the right things, God will shower you with material blessings. That obviously is a tremendously seductive promise to people who are mired in chronic poverty. Structurally, it also ought to be said that Pentecostalism can grow much more easily than Catholicism because the barriers to market entry are much lower. I mean, if you want to be a Catholic priest, think about what you have to go through, right? You have to go through four years of college, and then you have to go through four years of theological training, and then you have to be ordained by somebody in officialdom and given a job. Whereas if you want to be a Pentecostal preacher, basically all you need is some space in your garage and a billboard to announce your services, and you are good to go. So for a variety of reasons, Pentecostalism is poised for rapid growth. Now, you know, the thing is, the Catholic Church, you know, in Latin America in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, when the Pentecostal explosion took off, and in Africa today, faces two basic choices. One is, we can complain 
about Pentecostal growth. We can say that they're doing something wrong. The bishop in Ghana talked about spiritual guerrilla warfare that the Pentecostals were waging. But, you know, I mean, that's a little bit like complaining about the weather, right? You know, as Nelson Mandela famously said of globalization, whether you like it or not, it's coming. Well, look, so that's option one. Option two is we can try to learn from the Pentecostals. Forward-thinking theologians, pastors, bishops, and so on, probably right now in Africa, ought to be looking at precisely why these defections are happening. If it is possible that the Catholic Church can learn something about retail-level pastoral care. But however we respond, this reality is upon us. All right, finally, and quickly this week, as I mentioned, the Pope, despite his current health difficulties, is, at least at the moment, insisting that he still plans to make that trip to Dubai, December 1st through the 3rd. And it, of course, is for the COP28 UN-sponsored climate change summit. The Pope is clearly hoping that he can have an effect on Dubai, much like he had in 2015 on the COP summit in Paris, where in part, because of the energy created by Laudato Si, his encyclical letter on the environment, that created, helped to shape a perceived climate of urgency in which strong new limits on greenhouse gas emissions were ratified in Paris. He is hoping for a similar kind of outcome in Dubai, so the kind of high-stakes poker game that is being played here is that on the one hand, if the Pope goes to Dubai and dramatic action is taken, then he will get some of the credit. If, however, he goes to Dubai and nothing happens, it's a flop, then obviously, you know, he will have to deal with a perceived disappointment or failure. I will say this, that if Francis is actually able to make it, despite what's going on, I would suggest, and I'm not at all trying to imply that this was planned or calculated, but the fact that he is going to be coming to Dubai on the back of severe respiratory difficulties that forced him to curtail his schedule and from which he was visibly suffering, that probably will enhance his credibility. People will say, look at what he's putting on the line in order to be here, and it may make him a more effective spokesperson. My wife, Elise, assuming she overcomes her own respiratory difficulties, We'll have full coverage on the Crux site. All right, that is our show for this week. Please be following our coverage, cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. Next week, we will come to you from Rome with a wrap on the Pope and Elise in Dubai. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again very soon.